Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've done since the pandemic began, and now we have our live audiences back, as you can tell. Um, and we have great speakers here tonight. We have uh, Kip Thorne, a physicist, Nobel Prize winning. And uh, we have Leah Halloran, who is an artist um, and, uh, and has a background in physics as well, it seems like. Um, so uh, we're here to discuss their new book, The Warp Side of the Universe. And uh, it's an illustrated version of the ideas um, that uh, Kip worked on and that Leah illustrated. Um, this combination or the collaboration I will talk about in a little while, very interesting to get it started in the first place. But um, I wanted to say one thing, and that is that uh, I'm going to give the exact details here. Um, but uh, Leah has a solo uh, presentation of about one-third of the original artwork for this uh, from November 4th to December 23rd at the Luis de Jesus Los Angeles Gallery. Um, she has print editions of one of the original pieces of art that's available in case you want us out there, in addition, of course, to the book, uh, which is available for anyone who's interested and that has the prints of all of the different illustrations. All of the original art is, in, is copied in the book, right? Okay, great. So um, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start off with a presentation uh, by Kip and Leah about uh, how this came about and a little bit about what's in the book. So I'm going to begin with a prologue that basically introduces the ideas that are in the book. And uh, then we'll move on. I'll give a brief comment at the beginning of each of three sections uh, of this uh, on the screen. Uh, and so I'm going to read uh, some of the verse that's from the book. It is verse and paintings. Uh, and this is the introduction to the, to the book. Our universe is varied and vast. Galaxies, planets, stars, and moons, quasars, pulsars, and magnetars, all made from atoms and molecules, just like you and me, and all that we hear and touch and see. Our universe is also endowed with a shadowy, uh, marvelous shadowy side that is warped, phenomena forged from warped space-time. Witness the ravenous, fat black hole that Leah here depicts ingesting her wife, Felicia. Although this warp side is entwined in the weft of our matter-filled universe, its stars, its planets and nebula, its galaxies and its comets, we humans never saw it. Until just recently. Why did we never see? Warp space-time cannot produce light or other signals that yesterday's technology was able to perceive. So now, how has that changed? We humans have made our first contact with the warp side of our universe using gravitational waves, ripples in the, space, in the shapes of space arriving from a space-time storm so very long ago and very far away. To this we shall return. The warp side of our universe is home to many beasts, beasts that are forged from warp space and time, beasts that may well include black holes and wormholes, time machines and cosmic strings, gravity waves and singularities, our universe's Big Bang birth, and many other beasts, wondrous, weird, and wild. For decades, I, a beast, materially composed, have been consumed by quests, to fully comprehend this warp side of our universe. How? Through tricks of mathematics and computer simulations, probing Albert Einstein's relativity equations. And in a thousand-person fleet, 
of scientists and engineers, we've pursued a quest to invent, construct, and utilize our behemoth LIGO for humans' first encounters with the warped side of our universe. Big questions have driven these warped side quests, some that I'm sure you have asked yourselves and some you likely have not. How did our universe begin? Can anything travel backward in time? Can advanced civilizations build wormholes for fast interstellar travel? How does warped space-time behave when wildly, frenziedly writhing like the open sea in a storm? How does the warped side of our universe impact the material side, the side that we humans see and feel? In this artistic, poetic book that Leah and I have created, she and I use paintings and verse to shed some glimmers of light on all of these big questions. But in our presentation today of extracts from our gorgeous book, we only can touch on a few of these questions while either leaving the others behind. The black hole. First, we shall lightly explore the quintessential example of a beast who inhabits the side that is warped, the black hole. In the 1920s and 30s, when black holes first emerged from equations of relativity, Einstein didn't believe. They were far too bizarre for belief. But now we know that Einstein was wrong. Among the stars of our universe, quintillions of black holes are sprinkled, and millions inhabit our galaxy, our Milky Way, our home. The black holes all are hidden from view. They emit no light whatsoever. Nevertheless, they make themselves known when their gravity tugs on stars and on planets, gases, and galaxies. Just as Earth spins round its poles, so also a black hole rotates. The hole's rotation makes space round its swirl, like air inside a tornado. And just as the swirling air drags all the tornadoes can catch, cats and cows and cars and clocks, so also a black hole's swirl drags everything nearby into a whirl around the hole, fast near the hole's horizon, languid far away. As Felicia, aghast, falls feet first into the spin of a black hole, North Pole, her feet nearer the hole than her head get dragged around more strongly, so her lovely body gets twisted. Her eyes see her feet turn clockwise, and her feet see her head turn clockwise, so the swirl near the hole's North Pole comprises a clockwise vortex of twisting space bound to the hole's horizon. On the other side, the South Pole side of the rapidly spinning black hole, a counterclockwise vortex of rapidly twisting space bound to the hole's horizon twists all that passes through. A black hole is made from space that is warped. What space is warped, you may very well ask. Nothing less than all of the space of the universe in which we live. What is the way space is warped, you might ask. The measurable distance across a black hole is tremendously large. The measurable distance around the black hole is very much smaller. If space were flat, that could not be. The space of our whole universe may be warped in a larger space with higher dimensions, four or five or ten or more, dimensions that humans never can see, dimensions we physicists call the bulk how can we visualize this warping in Leah Halloran's dazzling paintings? We pretend that the space of our universe has just two dimensions instead of three. This space she depicts is a stretched rubber sheet, a membrane or brain in physicist's argot. As viewed by creatures who live in the bulk, 
bulk beans, I shall call them, our brain near the hole bends down like a funnel, making huge the distance across the black hole, the distance we measure inside of our brain, the distance traversing the funnel surface, inward, then downward, back up, and then out. The gravity near a black hole's mouth is unbelievably strong and arises inexorably from enormous slowing of time. And what of time inside the horizon, below the black hole's lip? Beneath the black hole horizon, time is cascading downward towards a vicious, chaotic singularity lurking within the black hole's core. A stormy singularity where space and time are wildly warped, a lethal singularity destroying all that plunges through, even space and time. When Felicia falls through the hole's horizon... To escape, she must swim upward, struggling against the unstoppable flow of down-cascading time. Backwards in time, she must swim, her only hope for escape. But Einstein's laws forbid such a swim, so Felicia is gripped by the forward flow of down-cascading time. The final section of this is about geometric dynamics, warp space-time in a storm, and gravitational waves. A very long time ago, a billion years in the past, well, here on Earth, multicell life arose and spread around the globe. In a galaxy far, far away, two spinning black holes danced round one another, rippling the fabric of space and time. The ripples, we call them gravity waves, sucked energy from the hole's orbit, so the holes spiraled inward, eclipsing each other toward a climactic collision. The holes at half of light speed catastrophically collided and merged. In a brief cataclysmic storm of writhing and twisting space-time that brought the waves to crescendo, the climaxing gravity waves from this catastrophic collision surged out of their birthing galaxy and into interstellar space. Spreading across our universe for nearly a billion years, they stretched and they squeezed all that they met, stars and planets and nebulae, in patterns that encoded a portrait of their birth, colliding holes, and space-time storm. Then, 50,000 years ago, when humans shared Earth with Neanderthals, the spreading and weakening gravity waves sailed into our spiral-armed Milky Way, our galaxy, our home. On September 14th of 2015, the waves at last approached our Sun and all of its planets. They sailed around our Sun, past the planet Mercury, past Venus and onward toward Earth, our home. Waiting on Earth near New Orleans, where American jazz was born, and waiting on Earth near Hanford, the town that made fuel for the first atom bomb. Waiting in these historical spots were observatories named LIGO. Each is an L-shaped man-made behemoth that sensed the passing gravity waves and deciphered the message they carried. Colliding holes and space-time storm in which the waves were born so very far away and very long ago. This tiny shudder in LIGO was momentous for the whole human race, our very first moment of contact with the warped side of our universe. All right, well, I'd, I'd like to uh, remind everyone before we get started with the interview uh, that this was um, supported by both Wonderfest and the Bernard Osher Foundation for this program. Now. You collaborated on this project. 
So you, you clearly must have met it at some point and said, this is a great <laughs> idea. And I, I, I read that it's like 13 years the book was in production. So um, why don't you talk about how this was generated as an idea? I'm going to start. Yes. Because I met you yours. before you met me. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. <laughs> so it actually started as a gift of a book given to me by my mother. When I was in graduate school, my mother gifted me Kip's incredible book, Black Holes and Time Warps, Einstein's Outrageous Legacy. And I had been, um, you were sort of right that I have a background in physics. So it's mm -hmm. more of a background passion and interest um, that I had taken a lot of astronomy classes. And, but there was something about the way that Kip communicated and transformed the experience of the universe in this book that made me feel excited that I could like in integrate that into my artwork. So I was in graduate school at Yale at the time for a master's in painting. And my for my MFA show, I made my very first painting. That was a 16 foot by five foot wormhole that was mm. inspired by Kip's, uh, Kip's book. Mm -hmm. So we became we collaborated even longer than 13 years ago. He just wasn't aware of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. the wonderful thing about books, isn't it? You know, that yes, we, we communicate across time and space, no matter if it's where or not exactly so fast forward probably six or seven years after that we were both at a party in pasadena for a friend of ours lisa randall another amazing physicist who writes for the wide for a wide audience and um i overheard someone say something something kip thorne and i thought oh my gosh <laughs> i raced over and gushed about how inspirational his book was to mm -hmm. me uh, and so uh, it was a great pleasure to meet Leah. She was so enthusiastic, but also so uh, so creative. And uh, she invited me to her studio. Uh, I went to her studio. I was just blown away by the paintings in her studio. Uh, and uh, the uh, and at and on that first meeting, uh, I talked a little bit about the warp side of our universe, about black holes and wormholes. And uh, Leah drew a sketch, a fabulous sketch mm -hmm. of uh, a universe that had black holes and wormholes sticking through it, just almost a a Seuss type uh, mm -hmm. a sketch. Uh, but but I have to interrupt you and say you wanted this sketch because he was taking it to a quote young filmmaker who was making a film about Kip science. Well, uh. that's what I did with it. I I didn't know I wanted it for that purpose. Drew it. <laughs> what, once you once you had drawn uh, had drawn it, I thought this is the ideal tool for me to present to this young filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, since uh, I was going to meet him and we were going to talk about doing a movie together. Has anyone heard of Steven Spielberg before? <laughs> that, that's who it was. It was Steven Spielberg. And we were, uh, it was at my first meeting with Steven about a movie that became the movie Interstellar, that in the end was not done, uh, not directed by Spielberg. It was directed instead by Christopher Nolan. But uh, Spielberg was the director for, for, for the first three years of development of that movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I used. Leah's uh, wonderful drawing to introduce Stephen to the ideas of black holes and wormholes and warp space time. So indirectly, you're going to have you know something from Steven Spielberg if you buy the book. And you... <laughs> actually, this sketch is is actually prominently featured at the end of the book because yeah. it really is our intro origin story of the first time that we started collaborating mm -hmm. of 
kept coming to my studio and I like to, the way that I always remember it is, is like, he would kind of blow my mind and I would like, my head would start to get hot. And then I'd think, okay, now I can draw something. And we just kind of nudge ideas back and forth. So it was the beginning. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you create art, you know? How I create art? Yeah. You just said your, your mind was blown and then these things came out. Yeah. So, so, I mean, particularly this kind of art, I'm sure that all your art doesn't look like wormholes and, and, uh, So, but this is an unusual form of art, and it's very evocative. And um, sort of, we heard how you got started by the inspiration from Kip's book. But what made you then think of all the different versions of this? And you know, and you might include in that discussion why you decided to use uh, Felicia uh, as part of the uh, objects. Well, let let let's begin with the issue of how we did come to truly collaborate, and that was that Mm -hmm. I was uh, asked to uh, write an article for Playboy magazine. And he immediately (laughs) thought of me. (laughs) (laughs) As one does. And uh, (laughs) this was in the era when uh, Playboy was trying to distinguish itself from other, quote, men's magazines, unquote, (laughs) by having some high-class literature of some sort or another. And uh, so... Uh, I uh, agreed that I would write this article about the warped side of our universe uh, uh, if uh, I could have Leah collaborate with me and provide the art. And so he looked at some of uh, Leah's drawings, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, editor that I was uh, talking to, and she was enthusiastic. She showed it to, to others, including. I presume Hugh Hefner anyway, mm-hmm. they were all enthusiastic. And so we went forward, we produced a draft of uh, an article uh, about the warp side of our universe uh, for Playboy magazine uh, and sent it in and uh, it got rejected. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't properly objectified the women. Let me also say, <laughs> Kip's, that's Kip's, precisely true, but those were not the words that they used. <laughs> Kip's text wasn't rejected. My artwork was was specifically rejected. Uh, yeah, well, they, you know, if, if it had gotten in, you probably would have gotten a lot of complaints from the readers. I thought it was going to be something else about the warped side of the universe. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they uh, we happily took our kill fee, (laughs) which is the fee that you get if if they reject your article. And they rejected it because, as we say, the women in the paintings were not sufficiently objectified. (laughs) Uh, That's a technical phrase. (laughs) Personally, by Hugh Hefner. We just want to make sure that that's the most... I wear that with pride. <laughs> I always tell my students that that is like sometimes rejection is actually one of the most yeah. important things that can ever happen to you. And this was actually an amazing moment for us to realize that every time we met, we it, it, Kip originally asked, do you want to make three paintings? And then we started the article and then it was five and then it was seven. And by the end, we had like even closer to 10, which weren't never going to fit in this article. So then we had the origins of like a little book. And mm-hmm. so it actually was just absolutely amazing that that it worked out that way and so so then uh, we decided we would turn it into a little book and leah had a friend of hers uh, lay uh, this thing out with her paintings and my uh, it was prose it was not verse at that point but her uh, friend who laid it out 
uh, it broke up some of my prose into stanzas, sort of like uh, verse. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I thought it was an epiphany. Mm -hmm. This could be uh, poetry. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if it turned into poetry, I can uh, convey the essence of what's going on in a more powerful way than I do in uh, prose. In prose, you sort of get lost in the details. Mm -hmm. With poetry, you can focus hard on bringing forth the key points in a powerful, uh, evocative manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, I had never thought of trying to write poetry before, aside from a, a few love poems to uh, my wife mm -hmm. uh, over the decades. And uh, so, uh, but, but I just realized this could be, and it could really be a powerful way of conveying the key ideas uh, of the warped side of our universe. And, so this began, and we started feeding uh, uh, paintings and verse back and forth, and this thing just grew and grew and grew, <laughs> and pretty soon it wasn't a little book anymore. Yeah, and kind of back to your original question of including, you'll notice that there's one space traveler, and it's my wife, Felicia, and it was very intentional decision. We talked about it over different periods of a year or so where Kip's intentional transformation into poetry, we wanted the book to take a real departure from what you usually get in a science book, which is something that's didactic, something that describes and really has an effort to tell you something. And we became really focused on creating the essence, the ethos of the universe, and do it in a way that's actually an invitation that's very intimate, intimate for Kip in his words, infant, in, and um, very intimate in like who is in the book. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, even to my wife's kind of surprise, she kept saying, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> so she became our main character because it was also a way, in a weird way, you know, now you look, you see it, it's a, it's a complete thing. Mm -hmm. For many years, we kind of, Kip's right, it kind of grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. But in one thing that we always came back to was we wanted to make the book that we would want to exist and that we would want to buy, mm -hmm. even if it was just Kip and I our own soul audiences. So this idea that it could be poetry, it could be these elegant paintings, it could have, you know, Felicia and Stephen Hawking and um, mm. Carl Sagan and Kip's team from LIGO, you know, all of that was really the, the kind of focal point uh, mm. for us is creating an, an experience of the universe. Yeah, so this is very unusual, a book for physics and it, for yeah. exactly the reason you said. So by distilling it to images and poetry, it, you know, most people think about the speculation of what's going on out, outside of our planet at all, or even outside their neighborhood. You know, it, it, it becomes more or less irrelevant to them exactly what the answer is. So how, how do you take those ideas of the warped side of the universe and the black holes and the wormholes? Uh, you have this wonderful analogy about the ant and the ample and the wormhole. I just love that you use wormhole in, in that way. But how do you think that people will take an idea, an image, from the book that will influence their life? <laughs> I mean, I think we hope that people would become very curious. Mm -hmm. You know, the book is, again, it, it's not um, necessarily a didactic description. If you want that, there's the end pages that I keep telling Kip no one's going to read. Right. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> a lot of end pages. <laughs> but They're I a think, good read. <laughs> I mean, I think more than anything, 
you know, there's a kind of inherent curiosity and problem solving about what is out there. Mm -hmm. And that even, I mean, we just hope that this will hit an audience in a way that maybe wouldn't pick up a book that is like very descriptive about physics, but they, some people might be drawn to the poetry. Some people might be drawn to the paintings Mm -hmm. and just kind of break a little bit open about what these things are. Mm -hmm. I really do have a, a feeling, a sense this conveys in a much more powerful way than anything I've ever written before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ideas, the ethos of what goes on on the warp side of the universe, the fact that there really is this aspect of the universe that we have never experienced before, an aspect of the universe that uh, we as physicists and astronomers only discovered in the last few years, mm-hmm. though we speculated about it before, and an aspect that we're beginning to be able to get some sense of in our observations and our theories working with Einstein's equations, uh, but convey the essence of it in a very powerful way that is, I think, much more compelling uh, than the normal kinds of science writing that I've done over uh, my whole career. Well, if you, for the audience, uh, the point that you're talking about is the fact that gravitational waves have been detected, and just recently, and gravitational waves have been suggested, speculated about for a long time um, from the mathematics, but they've been been detected. And it comes from these two black holes that you showed a little earlier in your prologue, you know, hitting each other or swallowing each other or whatever whatever they do in, in, in reality, but they, they make a mess that, that we can see. So uh, one of the things that I thought would be helpful for people um, is to say it, you, you, you say in your book, a billion years ago, these two black holes hit. And 50,000 years ago, it, the waves reached the Milky Way, and, and now we're, we're seeing them. So you imagine an event that took place you know, a billion light years away, basically. And a billion light years away, these two black holes hit each other or swallow each other or whatever they do. And, and the effect of that goes out in all directions from that spot and it hits us. But, but the enormity of w- how many waves there are and where they're going is a billion light. It's like a billion light year. I mean, actually not a billion light year. The radius of the sphere of the effect is a billion light years. So the, the diameter is two billion light years. And you're, that's what you're talking about. And every, at every edge of that huge sphere, there are gravitational waves affecting something from some event over there. Can you talk a little bit? Because I, I don't think people get the enormity of, yeah. of how much stuff that is. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a large fraction of our universe right yeah. there that, yeah. that these waves have covered. They just passed through the Earth a few years ago. Mm-hmm. The LIGO gravity wave detector that uh, is discussed in much greater detail mm-hmm. uh, in our verse and in prose in the, uh, the uh, back matter in the book, this gra- LIGO detector is turned back on at the moment and it is seeing black hole collisions uh, about once every three days mm-hmm. at the moment, uh, coming in, in all directions uh, in the sky. And these are just bathing the Earth. We never knew about them before. Mm-hmm. And each one is bringing us uh, information about these colliding black holes or black holes tearing stars apart mm-hmm. or stars that collide that are made of nuclear matter. Mm-hmm. Each one is uh, bringing us information about that, uh, as I say, about once every three days. And it's, it's really quite startling that, uh, that we're getting this. And 
Uh, in the case where two stars collided, we have seen, and this is described in the book, we have seen not just the gravitational waves, these uh, that stretch and squeeze space. We've also seen X-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, light, infrared radiation, uh, uh, ultraviolet radiation, all forms of radiation. We have seen from one of these collisions, uh, but it was LIGO with gravitational waves that saw it first, and then all these other forms of radiation came rolling in over the subsequent hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just changed our whole understanding of the universe. It's, and it's, it's been a huge transformative experience for thus they, that particular collision of these two stars is the most studied astronom astronomical object in the history of astronomy. A quarter of the world's astronomers observed it with one form of telescope or another. Mm -hmm. But with gravitational waves were the things that were seen first and which uh, sent the trigger out to all the other astronomers in the world to go look at it. And so we, we also describe this. It's, it is really a, a transformed uh, and is transforming our understanding of the universe. Well, from a poetic point of view, uh, it's said that we look back in time when we do that. But from a, from a realistic point of view, we don't look back in time. We see something that happened long ago when we're seeing the thing here in the present. Just like if you go to the rocks in the Rocky Mountains, you look at the rocks, and then you, with our knowledge, our scientific knowledge, we can say how long ago that was formed. So why don't you talk about that? Because there's, there's the, the popular way to talk about it, and then there's a little bit more detailed physics way to talk about it that, that, that I think helps people understand uh, what is really happening. Yeah, so, so uh, we are indeed, we're looking at the waves that are arriving today, but they were, were generated uh, hundreds of millions or billions of years ago. Mm. They are bringing us in Im images of what the universe was like then. Uh, and uh, and they, as I say, they're coming from all directions on the sky. Uh, and uh, But the, the point of our book is to really give you a sense of this in almost an emotional sort of a way, an intuitive sort of a way, a powerful sort of a way, a way that is, uh, for me, is much more evocative and much more powerful than my normal science writing. Uh, and uh, the, these uh, waves are, uh, I mean, they, they really have uh, just transformed astronomy. They're transforming humans' views of the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have been doing, and that, this is uh, much of what the book is about, we have been doing now with gravitational waves uh, what was begun with electromagnetic waves by Galileo mm -hmm. uh, 400 years ago when he built his first little optical telescope and pointed it to the sky and uh, discovered the four moons of Jupiter and that was the beginning of the marvelous things that uh, you see uh, through the big telescopes that we have today and with the gamma ray telescopes and x-ray telescopes. It's just been a burgeoning. And as we describe in, in this book, what has happened in the last few years with gravitational waves, stretching and squeezing of space, uh, is the beginning of what will be a few centuries of huge expansion in our understanding of the universe through this new kind of way of seeing the universe. Uh, and uh, 
that's the essence of the book is to try to bring in an intuitive and compelling sort of a way uh, a, a understanding, a, a feeling a, that uh, there really is a great richness to our universe that we've never seen before, that all has to do with warp, space, and time, and that we are beginning to explore with these kinds of gravitational wave detectors uh, in the way that uh, Galileo began to explore through telescopes for the first time, all the marvelous things that uh, you are now aware of about our universe. And I will say one kind of cool thing is that the, you know, the book we've been working on, I think it's closer to 14 years now, obviously LIGO had not discovered uh, gravitational waves at the time that we started. It was speculative. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in the book that Kip and his colleagues doing computer simulations were doing along the way while we were making the book. So mm -hmm. we've actually made closer to 600 paintings because everything was changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. And some of the sections of the book that are about the stretching and the squeezing and the tendexes, those are all absolutely cutting edge physics. It's not just that we're like mm -hmm. making an, you know, making a book that is like known commonly about black holes. So I think, you know, readers and audience will be really excited to see that evolution of what Kip's talking about, which is really a revolution in the future of astrophysics. When we began working on this book, we hadn't seen gravitational waves. I had been, all, by then, I had been working on the effort to detect gravitational waves myself. By then, I'd been working on it for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. That tells you I'm in my 80s, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but we hadn't seen gravitational waves. When we began looking on, working on this book, we didn't know anything about vortices of twisting space that stick out of black holes. We hadn't discovered that. That came out of computer simulations that we discovered that. Uh, we didn't know, uh, we, we knew that uh, space could be stretched and squeezed, but we didn't have the idea, the concept of tendencies, which play a big role in here, that do the stretching and squeezing. Uh, we uh, didn't, there was so much that we didn't, we, we knew very little about singularities where uh, space becomes so extremely wildly warped uh, that it basically destroys space and destroys time and these singularities. All this has become clear uh, just through research that physicists and astronomers were doing, a huge a fleet of physicists and astronomers, as we say in, in the book, uh, were doing in the 13, 14 years that uh, we were working on the book. Mm -hmm. And so the book is more than half of the book is about stuff we didn't know about uh, when we began working on the book. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the art world reaction to the same thing because we're, we're talking about how the, this is a new way to present physics, but it's probably pretty new or unusual art as well. Yeah. And so, so how did the art world react to the idea? Well, we're about to see. <laughs> I mean, I can say from my, uh, you know, from my perspective, I am an artist that shows in galleries, museums within the contemporary art world. I've never, um, you know, done something in such collaboration with someone where it was really important that uh, Kip's ideas were uh, translated, I would say, in a way that, again, created the ethos of things. Mm -hmm. But we have such an amazing you know, partnership and collaboration and friendship that there's a huge amount of trust that went back and forth. And some of my favorite moments was like, he would say something that 
I like wasn't really sure of my favorite one was gravitational foam. He said something something <laughs> gravitational foam, and I go, well, what what is that? And he says, well, you show me, you know. So it, 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 so at least. Um, at least from the perspective of uh, the from my from my studio practice, to me, this was such an exciting opportunity to do something for a wide audience. Right. I as an artist, I am a professor and chair of the art department at Chapman University and looking at two of my past students right now. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, and that's a really huge part of what I do as an artist is try to translate, you know, art and the passion of it to a wide audience. And so I found that this book would be an opportunity to do something that was really different than staying within the gallery museum world. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hope they react equally well, the, 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 the art world and the physics world. Yeah. So I have, I have a, a physics question about black holes. You say there's millions of black holes in our galaxy. You know, first people, even as early as the 90s, uh, I mean, as recently as the 90s, I should say, uh, weren't sure that there was a black hole in our galaxy at all, but then realized there had to be one right at the center. But now there's a hundred or, or a million around, and there's quintillions, as you say. Um, is there any possibility that black holes are linked to dark matter? You know that, that this is that this is where that dark matter resides because it's we can't see it, and we know that it's very intense and concentrated. Could they be related? It's conceivable the dark the, the missing dark matter. This is this. The, the issue of dark matter is that uh, that uh, when you look out and you add up all of the uh, mass of the universe that emits light, uh, you're missing 90% uh, of the universe, 95% of the universe. Is, uh, and so what, what, what form is all the rest of this in? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the phrase dark matter was invented to describe this because it emits very little or no electromagnetic waves. Uh, and yes, it's conceivable that uh, some portion of it, and maybe even the most of it, is in the form of small black holes. It right. would have to be very small black holes. There's a range of uh, black hole sizes mm -hmm. where uh, where that could be possible. And uh, uh, and uh, this mystery of what is this this dark matter is uh, a. a is one of the big mysteries of, of uh, physics today, yeah. astronomy today. I was wondering if that, if that possible tie-in has been speculated yeah. about. Yes, yes. So um, you've collaborated for uh, all these 14 years, um, and you know, there's a lot of marriages that collaborate for 14 <laughs> years. And so so uh, did you ever see the vision differently? I mean, not just uh, that he said, show me what, foam show, uh, what gravitational foam s seems like. <laughs> but was there any time you said, I like, this is how I see it. And, and he said, oh, I don't see it that way. That's not close <laughs> enough to, or, or, or did, you, did it not happen like that? I have to say, it's been a pretty beautiful, seamless collaboration mm -hmm. we just enjoy i think that that hopefully comes through in the book that we just enjoy being around and interacting with each other that you know so much of our time is was spent in the studio just looking and nudging things back and forth that i see the book as like more of a conversation between two people about what things could be if it was two other people or if it was a different artist or a different scientist it would look absolutely differently mm -hmm. but it totally represents what our um, kind of communication is. And definitely there's moments where Kip would look at a painting and say, it's fantastic, it's done. And I'd say, no, there's one part that I need to go back and redo. Um, and sometimes I would just 
put them in there and hope he didn't notice because he was attached <laughs> to the other one. But um, no. Yeah, so I should say that uh, different uh, scientists' minds work differently. Well, I know physicists best. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us as physicists uh, think very much in terms of equations. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, equations really are the language of nature. Uh, if you want to know precisely how the world works, uh, it really works as far best we can tell uh, in accord with equations, mathematics. Mm-hmm. However, uh, if you're trying to do research and you just do it by manipulating mathematics, you move at a snail's pace or slower than a snail's pace. Uh, you need some way to uh, have intuitive leaps mm-hmm. that will give you some sense of what calculations are worth doing, how how might things really be working, and then you can go in and work with the mathematics and then go do experiments and try to to test your ideas of how things might work. The intuition, the intuitive leaps, for me and I think uh, many of my colleagues, they come from mental pictures. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, in my case, I think primarily in terms of mental pictures. The same is true of Stephen Hawking, who was, who was a close personal friend of mine. Uh, and, uh, and that means that when I'm thinking about uh, physics and I'm trying to intuit beyond the boundary of uh, current knowledge or even trying to... Uh, to summarize for myself how things are working, it's almost all, almost always in terms of pictures. Uh, and uh, these pictures are just pow- very powerful in making leaps of understanding of, or leaps of connection between things that look like they're not connected, but you suddenly realize they are through pictures. And that means that uh, when I'm working with Leah, I'm just giving her the mental pictures that I use in my own research. And so... Uh, what she's doing is very close to the actual research that 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 I do. It's 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 displaying in a powerful pictorial way what I basically have in my own mind when I'm in the middle of doing research. Oh, she puts her own twist on it. She makes it much more beautiful. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it uh, really is the dis- the distance between what I'm doing. Uh, it, most of the time in research, when I'm not actually manipulating the equations, uh, and what she uh, paints is not very big at all. So you really are getting something pretty close to the raw stuff uh, when when she starts painting. And that's part of what makes it such a wonderful collaboration is she she can turn this into paintings that are absolutely beautiful that really are uh, sort of the outgrowth, the representation, the more beautiful representation of how I was thinking about it in the first place. Sounds like she should have been your doctoral student, one of your doctoral <laughs> students, with just a slightly different angle on the whole thing. Um, well, your, your paintings, uh, funnily enough, uh, I have only done one painting in my whole life. Um, I had a, a, an empty board in a bathroom uh, where they were supposed to put up a mirror, but I, I didn't have enough money to put up a mirror. It was in Hong Kong <laughs> in a small place, and so I painted it. And I used an abstract blue and white, all different blues and white. And I thought, well, you know, that's the only thing I can do. But, uh, but you, you, you did this so beautifully, and you did use a lot of blue and white in the picture. So I was just sort of curious, uh, not that you stole anything from me, but... <laughs> I wanted but, to take this uh, opportunity to apologize. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, but, uh, but why did you choose to, to present it in blue and white? Because yeah. we... we I, I, one thing that should be told, this is kind of semi-secret, but 
a lot of the images that are being brought back from the um, from the new um, Hubble telescopes and everything are colorized or, yes. or colored to make it look right uh, or to make it look more dramatic. And so we don't have quite as many colors out there as it looks like for everybody seeing those dramatic pictures. Yeah. So how did you choose blue and white? That's the, I'm that's glad the you brought up the images from the web um, yeah. telescope. Like that is an example of someone taking data and giving their interpretation. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I kind of wanted to go against that mm-hmm. and do something that was like absolutely just elegant. It w- it's um, I make work in all different mediums and photography and cyanotypes and oil painting. And this is ink on d- drafting film and mm-hmm. Duralar. And it's just a way in the most, to me, the most distilled raw form that would actually parallel what Kip was talking about in the way of taking a massive idea. I just don't, I can't imagine anyone else writing a book of poetry about black holes other than Kip's <laughs> right? <laughs> Understanding it so intimately, thinking about it for 50 years and then being able to put it down in such an elegant way. And so I wanted the medium to really parallel that. We had a conversation for probably a year and a half to use the, the to include the color red. There's uh-huh. one chapter that has these moments of red in it. And that's a good example where Kip's words, it was very important to convey these twisting of different poles and that I was thinking, okay, what visually could be the most simple trigger to the, vi- to the viewer to understand without a lot of description. Mm-hmm. So the, the form of the painting, the ink, the fluidity of it, you know, when you look at it up close, there's, it actually has like a, a there's moments where it just becomes abstract in it's of itself. And so I wanted the material to parallel the words and the delivery of this kind of intimate paired down description of the universe. Well, your, your pictures uh, convey a lot of motion, obviously. There's a lot of motion mm-hmm. in the twisting and warping of space and time. But the motion, and I think this is also partially because you use Felicia, it's almost like a mo- movement of of a mind through the universe, mm-hmm. almost like it's a s- spiritual experience or something like that. And I was wondering if you were thinking about that at all while you were doing it, or or whether that just came out of the pictures. <laughs> I mean, I think that it, I, I can say from an artistic perspective, these are I get so excited and in awe of the universe mm-hmm. when I think about things like black holes and wormholes. When my mom gifted me this book, I was taking astronomy classes, you know, in grad school at Yale. And it wasn't because I wanted to be an astronomer. It just was like so exciting to me. And, you know, is that that ties to like a greater understanding or in awe of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, we keep coming down when we when we first sort of had something that we wanted to possibly share with an agent, a publisher to make mm-hmm. a thing. That's the those are the words that we kept coming back to mm-hmm. is we want to translate the universe at, of in large, the experience of it, this experience of something greater than ourselves. Yeah. Okay, now let's go down into the weeds of the science for just a second. <laughs> Do you want uh, me to take this question? <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. Let's switch off. And that is, you know, you, you talk about having speculated and having these mental images for decades and decades. But you, but the other part of it was once you got going on trying to detect it with LIGO, you, you know, you tried all kinds of things. There, there's a lot of details and that they went wrong and then you had to adjust it and you worked with the team and then you have this big team. And went, because I think a lot of people don't, understand how many people are involved uh, you make a couple comments about about you know other people not getting enough credit because it's a big team of people but it, it's also 
so much detail on hard work. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> it's not just speculating and it comes yeah. out right, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, so our challenge in gravitational waves, which is the central here to, the, to this book, uh, was to do for... Let me back up. There are only two types of waves that can be created in the distant universe and travel to the Earth, bringing us information about the distant universe, according to the laws of physics that we know them, electromagnetic waves and gravitational waves. And uh, it was Galileo who started modern electromagnetic astronomy by building an optical telescope, pointing at the sky, discovering Jupiter's far, far largest moons. And we wanted to do the same thing for the other kind of wave, which... Einstein had predicted also exists, the gravitational waves. And so we had a team, to pull it off, we had to build a team of a thousand people. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very complex effort. It lasted, the effort took, uh, took 50 years. Ray Weiss and I, who uh, started out, uh, we, be uh, we began in the 60s, and the success finally came in 2015. Uh, and so it was a massive, and in the end, in order to pull it off successfully, uh, Barry Barish, Ray and I, and Barry Barish got the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, is, is, uh, uh, it, it should have gone to the team of a thousand people, but they only uh, could give it to a maximum of three people. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh, Barry Barish uh, really realized you've got to have a much bigger effort than you have. And he came in, took over, and he transformed it into the thing that was successful. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, in the end, after 50 years of work, uh, we did have success in cre creating this whole new way to observe the universe and in making our first human contact with the warp side of our universe. Uh, at, but it uh, was a very complex process. Uh, the instruments that we built had an unbelievable number of things that could go wrong, and so we had to, the experimenters had to uh, build in ways to observe everything that was going on inside the instruments as well as the environment. And there are 100,000 data channels that uh, were coming out of the environment and out of the interior of these instruments. Of course, most of which we as humans never looked at, mm -hmm. uh, but that could be flagged if something was going wrong somewhere. It would stick uh, one of the data channels would stick its neck up and say, "Hey, come look at me." Mm -hmm. uh, so tremendously complex instruments to pull this off, but in the end, a very simple, basic idea: these gravitational waves are ripples in the shape of space. They stretch and they squeeze things. Mm -hmm. And we just had to build an instruments that could measure teeny, teeny, tiny stretches and squeezes. Um, and so the, in, in the book, we tell the story of this, uh, but very briefly. Uh, but to tell it from uh, my own personal perspective, uh, and I don't know, it must be about 10 or 15 pages of this uh, 200 and 40, 260-page book. But do you remember you that. tried to leave that part out? I was like, it's kind of an yeah. elephant in the room yeah. that you have a Nobel yeah. Prize. So I started making the <laughs> and I said, write about this. <laughs> well, I, I have always found the Nobel Prize a little bit embarrassing uh, yeah. because it should have gone to the whole team, and it, uh, it just went to three of us. But uh, and, and so I, 
under uh, from pressure from her, I uh, sort of laid it out on the line in here that uh, did discuss it. It's uh, in the end, uh, the three of us who got the prize became icons for the field, and it's not very comfortable for me being an icon. But <laughs> but uh, how about for Barry and Ray? Did they like it? Uh, I I think Barry, Barry has his head screwed on more straight than that. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I think I think he was capable of enjoying it with, without letting it go to his head at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ray and I are both sh more shy. Well, but, you, you you mentioned something about Ray, which I thought was very interesting yeah. in that description, which was that he felt guilty about using the taxpayer money until it worked. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we we spent yeah. one point one billion dollars of your money. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the book. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, as the theorist, uh, who was close to the experiment, I was probably the one person who really understood the experiment deeply and the theory deeply and the ob astronomical observations. So I had a pretty good idea of where we had to be to have success. And yep. it turns out I was right on. Uh, but... Uh, and so I knew where we were going. I knew where we had to be, and I knew, I thought I knew roughly how long it was going to take. It took a little longer because there were political things got in the way. Yeah. But it was a a, a a long time. But for Barry, for for Ray, uh, he really was feeling. I mean, look, we had convinced a thousand uh, young scientists to stake their careers on this, mm -hmm. uh, and we had spent a billion dollars of your money on this. And uh, well, we did have something to show for it. We were developing technology that would have applications in huge wide variety of other areas because what we were doing was the hardest thing technically that anyone had ever done. Uh, but, uh, uh, but nevertheless, the fact that we hadn't seen gravitational waves was hard on Barry until they finally came in. Well, yeah. That was fascinating, and we have time for questions. I'm pretty sure that oh, there, okay. somebody jumped out of their seat already. Okay, so um, I'd like to remind you that this was uh, supported by both Wonderfest and the Bernard Osher Foundation, and we will take questions now. And the first one goes to the people who jumped. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned that uh, mathematics is the descriptor of nature, and yet mathematics... Uh, is a purely abstract concept. You need no nature. If nature didn't exist, the math would still be there. Why? What is the connection? Something deeper between the two? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not deep enough to know. But what I can say is that it's an empirical statement that mathematics has enormous power in explaining and predicting what goes on in nature. It just turns out that way. Uh, and uh, I, as a physicist, accept that it does turn out that way. I think of myself as more of an engineer. I use the mathematics. Uh, I apply it, to, and I use it to explore nature. Uh, I use it to, to organize uh, the observations that we see into a, into a form that... To, that a physicist can grasp and manipulate in order to make new predictions. And it's just uh, incredibly powerful. But why? I don't know why, but that's just an empirical statement.
Leo, you want to answer that one? Yeah, I would just think that (laughs) mathematics is just one tool to understand the thing that you're curious or you're problem solving. You can think of it as like the tool that overlays the natural object or phenomenon that you're looking at in the same way that visualizing or having different ways of understanding the thing can be. But it turns out that mathematics appears to go much deeper than the visualizations. Uh, The the mathematics does appear to be, as far as we can tell, the ultimate arbiter of things. But the visualization enables me to make leaps of understanding far faster and more powerfully than the mathematics. Well, the early Greeks would, would uh, you know, who got excited about all this stuff, probably first or almost first, um, they thought that the math was like an inherent pattern that they were uncovering. So, so if you think of it as an inherent pattern uh, that underlies matter, I think that's an easy way to, to understand why it's so powerful. So I, I was particularly attracted to some of the images that, that you put up. And something that's not maybe quite as high-tech as gravitational wave, but is gravitational lensing, you know, that was there for a long time before. And I've seen many of these images where in the background you've got a galaxy that's just a little blob. And even though it's stretched and twisted and, very, and turned in various ways, you can't really see that. And it struck me that if you took Felicia and put you know, her back there with a gravitational lensing and you could see how it was twisted and turned, that would make a very interesting picture. So, so. 601. <laughs> <laughs> you pass it down. <laughs> I was struck by uh, one comment you made, Dr. Thorpe, that... Uh, gravitational waves arrived before the electromagnetic waves. And I thought the electromagnetic waves went at the speed of light. So is gravitational waves going faster than speed of light? Uh, So these waves, both the gravitational waves and the electromagnetic waves that we see coming from two black hole, two neutron stars that collide, uh, the gravitational waves come out immediately because they can't be uh, stopped by matter. The electromagnetic waves are trapped in the very hot matter of these colliding stars. Uh, And so they're trapped, they're held, and it requires about a second or two seconds until they get liberated, until, in technical language, the uh, matter is expanded enough that it becomes optically thin uh, so that the electromagnetic waves can get out. And so it, uh, and, it, and this is about the amount of time delay that you expect that the that the highest energy electromagnetic waves, the gamma rays, are trapped for about a second before they manage to get out. Whereas the gravitational waves, they just come out promptly, right right at the moment of the collision. Uh, but they travel at the same speed. Uh, the these uh, uh, this source of the colliding black holes uh, is. Uh, so far away, it's, uh, I, I forget, uh, 30 uh, million light years. Uh, and uh, the uh, difference in arrival time is one second out of 30 million years of travel time. That's a t- <laughs> tiny, tiny difference. That tiny, tiny difference is we are essentially sure because the electromagnetic waves were trapped for one second before they managed to get out.
Now we know the universe has a first mover advantage too. <laughs> Hi, uh, I have a question for Leah. Um, I've seen you before per, uh, perform magic tricks. Um, I don't know how many people in the room know this, but Leah can perform some amazing uh, magic, like illusions. And in a way, you're a bit of a mind reader in this whole endeavor in being able to translate these complex, hyperdimensional ideas and thoughts into discretized something on paper. Um, and sort of like the mending of two great minds together. So I'm curious, Kip mentioned earlier, in order to make quantum leaps, we need to build this, we need to have this strong intuition. So I'm curious, where did this intuition for you come from? What inspiration did you pull from to be able to actually illustrate these hyper complex ideas? Great question. I also do uh, different animal balloons. I just <laughs> <laughs> All the talents at once. <laughs> um, I, I, I really love that question because I've always found that there is a kind of parallel between magic illusion and the making of contemporary art because you're really inviting the viewer to go on something that you can't just describe, but that there's something else that is untold that you feel or you feel like overwhelmed by or you kind of intuit without and outside of language. And I think the closer that I tap into that, um, I always say, like, I try to make things in my studio that um, that surprise me, because if I can't surprise myself, then I probably don't have a chance of surpri surprising a viewer. Um, so many times I'll make something and kind of see if it has uh, like a wow factor and, you know, come back a day later. And if it doesn't, you know, hit me in that way, then, um, then it's back to the drawing board. And that's, I think a lot of the iterations, um, you know, I've said, we've made these hundreds of paintings. And a lot of that is a conversation between Kip and I iterating, but it also is coming down to like the simple form of like, it's so simple, like a card trick, you could just do it right in front of you. And you know that it's not real. And yet you still are, you know, suspended by disbelief. Firstly, thank you. This is really, really beautiful to, to watch. Thank you. Um, I'm really just curious about the tension between sort of the the equations in the art. I mean, I, and maybe this is a caricature of the two characters we have in front of us, the physicist and the artist. But <laughs> the, I can just imagine these sort of idea of, the, the the you know you're not getting the equation you don't understand the equations on it but you don't understand how to put it across and the, did that come across you did ask a little bit about tension I'm just curious if there's anything or if you're more mature than that <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think from my from my point of view I don't think in terms of equations normally I normally think in terms of pictures uh, and the pictures don't capture the full detail they capture the essence. And the pictures are my tool in making intuitive leaps. Uh, and because I think in terms of pictures and not in terms of equations, uh, the transfer over to uh, Leah was very smooth and, uh, and uh, simple and powerful in, in that she could uh, bring the pictures to life in a uh, much more compelling way than what I was carrying around in my mind. There would be times when Kip would say, uh, like, there's the one of our favorite paintings in the book, I think for both of us, is a Felicia twisting in one direction on the North Pole and the South Pole. You know, and it's done in this very simple, you know, ink form. It's just a, you know, 
a range of intensity, essentially the wateriness of the ink. And Kip would say, but the top has to be clockwise and the bottom has to be <laughs> counterclockwise. That's the closest to going to the equation. And I'd say, okay, I'll do the bottom clock, you know, and just doing it again and again until it again captured that essence. And, and, and then I finally said, one of them has to be blue and the other has to be red. So. This is an, a year and a half discussion. I resisted for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, we needed two colors for for that. There is this duality in physics. Clockwise versus counterclockwise, stretch versus squeeze. And uh, somehow this duality of the two opposite kinds of twisting and stretching versus squeezing, they're really central to uh, the warp side of the universe and there needed to be some way to in a compelling manner to capture that and that's where we wound up with the two colors. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious on, I know you said you included Felicia or included a subject, right, to create intimacy, and you obviously your wife's intimate. How did you guys come up with that? Like this whole book is about science and then putting it on paper. Where does that play into the realm of what you guys decided to come up with? How, how did that play into it? Well, back to Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this book really, it almost like became itself. It kind of told us what to do. And the part that I didn't mention early in the Playboy article is that I thought I was being very subversive because I had included all of these queer and trans women. I thought they was going to be the first in Playboy to sneak them into this article. And so Felicia was actually in the article from the beginning. Um, so we had several science, female scientists as like describing LIGO in the very first article. And then as it just distilled and went on, we just had conversations about like, um, it just should just be one, it should just be one person. And that the viewer would come along the ride if they could kind of feel it embodied, instead of saying, you know, a space traveler, that's a lot different than, you know, Kip is not just saying Felicia, Kip is saying very specifically, Leah's wife, Felicia, you know, you create that does something to the viewer, it makes you think, like, oh, why? You know, and I think representation is really important in the book as well, in all of my work. And this book is no different. I just felt it made it more compelling to have Felicia be the sole person. Kip loves in Felicia. That's the, the bottom line. <laughs> so does so does Leah. Kip, Felicia is very lovable. <laughs> um, so I really love uh, science drawings. Uh, when I was a kid, I did a, uh, there was this art I copied of a moon landing. I was just curious, have you done other science drawings? Um... <laughs> not really. Oh, that's not true. Of science drawings? Science like, drawings? Like in well, terms well, of but depicting you, but, but your, your art, uh, you, you have these wonderful uh, paintings of stalagmites, stalagmites uh, uh, paintings of female astronomers a lot a lot of your paintings are related to science yes my work in general is related to science and nature but nothing like this where it's like it's des describing something very very specific yeah and one question for Kip. I, I think a billion dollars isn't that much money <laughs> considering as a science experiments um so when when the gravitational waves pass earth and keep going what happens to them do they bounce off someplace, just keep going? They just keep going. They're extremely penetrating. The gravitational, and, and we do go into this in the book. We 
the the last section of the book, which we didn't touch on here, uh, is a sort of a vision of uh, what we will see with gravitational wave detectors in the future. Uh, and the most important is the gravitational waves from the birth of the universe. And gravitational waves are the only form of radiation that is so penetrating it can be created at the beginning of the universe and travel unimpeded, no absorption and re-emission, no scattering, travel unimpeded to us today, bringing us a vision, a picture of the birth of the universe. Uh, and uh, so uh, this, uh, this is also what makes them so hard to detect, because if you can't stop them, <laughs> if you can't deflect them, uh, then how are you going to detect them? Well, we interact with them, but very, very weakly with our gravity wave detectors. We do the best we can, uh, but they pass on through our gravity wave detectors almost unscathed, uh, and they pass through the very hot matter of the early universe almost unscathed. It's interesting because neutrinos were attempted to be seen for a long time, and they, they also go right through everything. So it's really fantastic that you were able to do something that's probably even more penetrative, right? Yeah, well, the neutrinos from the earliest moments of the universe, they, they uh, are not liberated until the universe is about, according to theory, according to our calculations, until the universe was about one second old. Uh, in the they first one second of the universe, <laughs> they were trapped in the hot matter and they yeah. just couldn't get out and travel. Uh, whereas the gravitational waves were never trapped in the hot matter. Mm. Of course, the second seems pretty short, but uh, uh, when I tell you that it, it took a certain amount of time for space and time to come into existence. <laughs> and we can say how long it took because we can measure it very roughly as time is coming into existence. And that, that amount of time is 10 to the minus 43 seconds, which means zero point, and then uh, I guess 42 zeros, and then a one of a second. Uh, it's our, uh, one over uh, one with 42 uh, zeros after it, or 43, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, the, uh, and so there's a huge amount, and from that point of view, a huge amount of time in that first one second. A huge, a huge number of things went on in that first one second. Neutrinos were trapped for that whole first one second. Gravitational waves were not. They were, and so they can really bring us a picture of the very, very beginning of the universe. And that's uh, as we uh, describe in, in verse, in paintings, that is the uh, big, uh, most exciting challenge of all uh, for the future of, uh, of uh, astronomy is to see that with gravitational waves and see the birth of the universe and understand the birth of the universe with gravitational waves. Well, Kip, I think you're a little modest about, about your math, you know, and, I, and, and it's not so much uh, the physics theory, but you calculated almost perfectly how long this whole project was going to take, and you finished it, you know, when you were 70. Finish it, but you, you <laughs> no. got it done before you were 80, uh, uh, and you worked on it for five decades. That takes a lot of mathematical calculations no, I, to get it right. I underestimated how long it was going to take. <laughs> I really did. But, but, but you it, had just it, enough time. It, it didn't become clear how long it was going to take until we were pretty deeply into it. Yeah. Uh, it, it certainly was 
uh, it was certainly clear by 2000 that it was going to be roughly another 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, back when we started uh, in uh, uh, back in the 1960s, it wasn't clear at all. All right. Our well, book is just a short project, only 14 years. Right, exactly. Yeah. He probably, you know, just like that for Kip, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that was great. Thank you very, very much. Thank uh, you all for coming. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club, and it's the 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you all for coming. Hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.